Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to the IRR show. That is, of course, a show that comes to you every Tuesday that views all issues through the lens of classical liberalism. Uh, good morning to you and welcome to it. This show, of course, is brought to you by Chai FM and the Institute of Race Relations. Shout out to both of those organizations. And um, let me say good morning to the star of the show, someone who I love um, having on the show with me every Tuesday. Sarah Gon, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Um, hi, Sikle. Um, sunny up here. I know you're in Cape Town. Yeah, sunny and warm down here. It's been, yeah. it's been a welcome change from the, the, the bitterly cold Johannesburg mornings. Um, I'm yeah. now based here in Cape Town for the next two months uh, for the Big Daddy Liberty Show. But nonetheless, let's move on to today's show, which I think will be very interesting. A reminder to the listener that the IRR show begins every Tuesday as it does by looking at the news week that was, you know, what had you tongues wagging over the last week? What made the uh, weekend news that we just came out of? So we always begin the show by just breaking down the top headlines, providing a bit of analysis and um, going through that. And of course, in every show, we often have a fantastic guest. Today we have uh, a DA member of the provincial legislature, Jack Bloom, who's also their party's spokesperson on all things health-related. Uh, for those of you who maybe follow Jack on social media, you'll know that he's quite a, a, a vocal voice um, and, and he's become actually quite an authority on issues of the public health care system here in Gauteng. So with that being said, let me quickly take an ad break, our first break, and after the break, we look at the Newsweek that was... Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Right, welcome back to it here on the IRR show that comes to you every Tuesday at 9am. I must just apologize if you are able to pick up the background noise of drilling and the like. There is a bit of construction work where I am. Sorry, let's, let's hop straight into um, some of the major headlines I think that really got the news week going. And I, I must begin here because I think they will even define the news week ahead. And that's the restaurant industry <laughs> yeah. in this country basically saying, that's it. We are now officially drawing the line in the sand. Um, we will not go quietly into the night. They're looking to right. protest with their one million chairs protest. Do you want to yes. chip on that? Okay. The one million chairs protest is due to take place tomorrow at lunchtime from one to two. And what they're going to do is restaurants are going to put their chairs and tables into the streets and clearly lost the traffic. Um, I also hope they'll take the advantage of a sort of drive-in, you know, drive-by, collect food, whatever process it's called, and make money at the same time. But you're dealing with a sector that's, that's very vulnerable. It, it largely lives from month to month. That's and right. because it's t- taken so long to give them the go-ahead to open, a, a lot of restaurants have already gone to the wall. So then they open, um, fairly strict regulations, but the one that is the killer for them and for which they've spent a lot of money on licenses is the prohibition against selling alcohol, which for a lot mm-hmm. of restaurants is, is key. And then 
as if it isn't bad enough, when last weekend they announced a curfew, sort of implemented immediately from nine o'clock in the evening, you find mm. a situation where restaurants have to close by seven for everyone to get home in time, Ooh. which is beyond unimaginable. Um, it's mean, just, it's, it's so bizarre. It, it's forcing ordinary South Africans. You see, we sometimes forget. We, I think sometimes you fall for the trap. Um, the, the often sort of stereotypical image of, of a, an entrepreneur capitalist type, you know, men in, in long fur coats and top hats grinding the faces of the poor. These are not those individuals. These are mm-hmm. ordinary South Africans um, who have taken the risk, started a business, and are actually providing um, for, in, in many cases, many families within their businesses mm-hmm. um, that are able to put bread on their table. And it's those individuals who are suffering at the moment. Uh, for anybody who's maybe been watching this campaign on social media, yeah. You know, you've had, you've had the, the business owners, um, you know, tell stories, for example, of the number of people who are affected, how many jobs have been lost. And it's absolutely heartbreaking mm-hmm. um, because you think to yourself, as those people are losing income, the very politicians who are putting them in that position, they're fine. You know, they get their salaries at the end of each month. They're absolutely fine. So this is one I'll be watching. Indeed, it's one I'll be supporting um, and I'll be bringing on the Big Daddy Liberty Show um, because, I've, I mean, anybody who watches my show, for instance, will know I've been saying for a very long time, if you do not draw the line in the sand, then politicians do not back off. The taxi industry in this country is an apt example. Whether mm-hmm. you like them or you hate them, they showed the way. They paved the way in, in anything. And actually being able to say, actually, here's the thing. We are the business owners. We are the entrepreneurs. We know our businesses. You, dear politician, are unfortunately an economic illiterate, in their view at least. Um, and you do not get to tell us how we run our businesses. You can set the laws, absolutely, in terms of providing fair play and protecting against COVID, but you do not destroy businesses in the process of doing that. And they literally draw a very firm line in the sand and the state respected it. So other industries absolutely must fall in line and actually take on that stance if we're going to survive this lockdown. Um, But again, without going into that round, um, there are some other issues you raised, Yassar, which I... um, I just want to just quickly add a, a, a point. Yes, sure. Um, no, I just wanted to say that campaign you mentioned on social media is actually terribly sad because it's a, mostly photographs of owners or chefs holding up a sign just saying how many people they employ. Now, you'll have a restaurant that's probably no bigger than my lounge, could easily employ 20-odd people. I mean, and if you Absolutely. multiply that by th- at least three of for the people they support, that's it gives right. you an idea of the consequences. That's right. It's, it's a bloodbath to a large extent economically. Um, speaking about bloodbath, it looks like unions, as you mentioned in your notes, uh, <laughs> are on a warpath with the public wage sector wage, uh, or yeah. still, sorry, demanding a, a um, public wage. wage sector increase. Uh, yeah. How reasonable is that in, the, in these times? You see, you see, what the unions are banking on is the fact that the increase is part of an already agreed three-year wage deal, which has been the practice in pub, in public sector particularly. The, the problem is, and understandably, and I think we would support that, I think we probably have very little sympathy for the actual workers, whatever their situation is, is that the, the government is saying they don't have the money. Actually, they never had the money, but they just found it and kept giving it. But now they really, really don't have the money. So I think what's going to happen is this this whole issue is going to end up in court, and it's going to be an issue of interpretation of agreements and uh, to what extent the uh, external factors do or do not play a role in this. Um, but 
you know, there's also the attitude with the increases is the sense, and, and you see particularly with SAA, that almost public sector employees are not, um, may not be retrenched. Now, um, I don't know if, if the ANC made promises of, of a kind, but retrenchment where, where, where necessary, where, where uh, income is down, is is an is an is a natural part of restructuring an environment to to keep down costs and 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 revitalize it or close it down altogether if it's just not performing. Mm. So there's this divide between private and public that uh, is inex- uh, it's explicable, but it's inexplicable if you know what I mean. Uh, I often say this, you know, that in the private sector, information is king, and information in the private sector, if you're an entrepreneur, is both the profit making. Incentive and the loss side of it. Yeah. Losses incentivize you to act rationally. If you're making losses in a private business, you do anything and everything in your power um, in order to stave off those losses so that you actually survive. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the public sector, you don't have those incentives. You know, they're driven by political incentives where a politician sees loss in their regard as being loss of support from the unions. Um, and not actually loss of, you know, um, mm. you know, public funds and really mm. even a loss in the quality of life of citizens. They, that becomes secondary, if not incidental. And that's the mm. danger of having an unchecked government. That's the danger of having a government that doesn't respond to public incentives when it comes to uh, decision making in the state. So we'll definitely keep an eye on this one. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. we've only got a few minutes before okay. we get to our break and the guests. Um, oh, but let's, let's maybe touch on one or two issues here. Yeah. Um, I want to go into Nomvula Mukonyaya at the uh, Zondo Commission. What a performance, yeah. Sarah. Uh, this, this was fun. I mean, um, Mukonyani must probably be in, in the pantheon of bad ministers. I mean, I, you know, I think she's right down there, let's put it this way. And I mean, she, the last thing she did was, was destroy water supply to the, to our country, uh, running right. the water and whatever else goes with it department. Um, and I mean, she is a truly corrupt, bad, incompetent person. She was once the premier of this province, which is just mind-boggling. Um, so she's now gone to the Zondo Commission to challenge the evidence given by An- Angela Grizzi, and she's saying that his evidence is essentially false, uh, nasty, and racist. Uh, and, yes, the, the ah, yes, we go the again. No, 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 no. Yeah, mm, terrible. Uh, um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, her performance, of course, leaving much to be desired because, again, the Zondo Commission, as we all understood it, was a pursuit of the truth. So I think it's something we need to keep an eye on in that regard. Um, and speaking about keeping an eye on things, sorry, I've got an eye on the time. We must go to our ad break. After the break, we have Jack Bloom from the Democratic Alliance. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. All right, welcome back to the IRR show, uh, the only show that views issues through the lens of classically liberal ideas. For all your news, analysis, and opinion, remember you can find us on our website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. On the show today, um, someone who I'm very excited to speak to, um, that's the uh, spokesperson for healthcare or health, sorry, in the Democratic Alliance, who is also a member of the provincial legislature, Jack Bloom. Jack, good morning. Welcome to the IRR show. Good morning. Good to be with you. Fantastic. It's very good to have you on the show. Jack, I think 
you know, uh, you're someone who we really wanted to have on the show because, again, there is an important conversation to be had, and, and but I think should not be lost. Um, as we know, as uh, excuse me, as you know, the the news cycle sort of focuses on one particular health issue, but we know we sometimes forget that there is an entire health system that, for the past 26 years, um, has been the subject of many um, a just in, a, a, a subject, excuse me, of um, just as much, uh, just as important issues. Sorry stemming out of the public health care system in this country. Um, Jack, I'm going to begin with just a topical issue that's on everybody's tongue. Your experiences at the moment um, of the public health care system in dealing with COVID-19, what's been some of your observations? Well, look, there, there's terrible overcrowding, and I get lots of reports of ambulances. Uh, well, first of all, the ambulances don't come on time. Uh, we've got a very poor ambulance service, and uh, it's particularly bad now. But uh, when the ambulance finally arrives, they, they, they actually can't find beds. They have to go from hospitals to hospital, and that's very distressing. Uh, the other thing that uh, I find uh, very worrying is that uh, there's still overcrowding in our public hospitals, at, uh, particularly at casualty sections. So if you didn't have uh, COVID-19 before, you, I hate to say, quite likely to pick it up uh, hmm. in certain sections of a hospital, and that's too terrible for words. I mean, I know one hospital uh, in Soweto where, you know, most of the staff have been infected. Uh, so it's it's of great concern that uh, hospitals become uh, sites of, of cross-infection. We've seen this with private hospitals. I think it's even worse in, in the public hospitals. Um, Jack, given your sort of long experience in the Gauteng hospital sector, health sector, um, could in the in the first initial hard lockdown, could Gauteng ever have been made ready for this? Well, I think they could have done a lot more. We heard a lot of talk about field hospitals. You know, field mm. hospitals are temporary hospitals. You mm. should be able to put them up uh, fairly quickly. But uh, it's only a, a hospital if you've actually got proper equipment. So we were promised uh, uh, up to five field hospitals in various parts of Gauteng. The only one that's actually partially operating is the Nazarek one. And, mm. and now we hear that it's mostly uh, for quarantine cases and uh, doctors... Uh, that, uh, two weeks ago had to make an appeal for oxygen uh, supplies to, to try and actually do some real treatment there because it's actually needed. The hospitals are very overstressed and that's why you have a field hospital. So unfortunately I don't think we've done as much as we really could have done with uh, field hospitals. There were some good private sector proposals. There was a proposal for a, a field hospital at uh, Gallagher, Gallagher Convention Centre mm. but nothing seems to have come from that. Uh, to give the MEC for Health uh, some credit, he said, well, if we're going to spend money, we should rather do beds that can be used in future. So mm. according to him, by the end of this month, uh, there are going to be another 300 beds, for instance, at Chris Hari Baragwanath Hospital, at Jubilee Hospital, at Copenhagen Hospital. Well, I hope that's true because he said they're using something called alternative building technology, which is fine if it actually happens. Mm. Uh, um, and uh, Yes, I, I agree. If we can have uh, 
more permanent, uh, well, permanent facilities uh, built out of this and for, for use later, that's good. But uh, the, frankly, we need them now. And uh, the field hospitals uh, are a good solution that's been used overseas. But uh, I don't know if we have made uh, adequate use of the lockdown period. I'm, I'm disappointed, frankly, particularly with oxygen. I think uh, it's mm. been proven that uh, oxygen is critical in in survival chances. And, and here we have doctors mm. having to make their own appeal for, for people to donate or loan. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they call an oxygen concentrate. You know, this takes ordinary air and concentrates oxygen so it could be used. But honestly, the bed should have had piped oxygen and, uh, we, we really could have done far better. So uh, unfortunately, there's been gaps in, in their preparations for, for the surge, which is certainly happening now. Mm. Jack, I want to, I want to chime in here because I, you know, I spoke to a friend off, off the record who is a, a medical doctor in the public health care system there in Gauteng, um, and he made mention something which actually frightened me, that it, it, is, it isn't necessarily a, a case of there not being resources. And even in the context of overcrowding, you know, he made the argument that, yeah, you know, overcrowding is something they're quite used to, uh, unfortunately, in the public health sector. And, you know, on a day-to-day basis, they do their best to manage. However, he says... It is actually a, a, a case of poor planning insofar as that when we hear in the news, for example, that, you know, uh, you know COVID is, is uh, 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 overwhelming the system, blah, 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 how he framed it was actually the spaces they allocated for COVID patients were so insufficient that if you, for in- instance, had a ward that was designated for COVID patients that can only take, uh, for argument's sake, 200 patients, and you have 201, maybe even 202 patients, that that then is, is, is what's being called, you know, the, the overcrowding of the system. But in reality, as he put it, there are other wards that are just maybe even available and even empty, that they should be augmenting um, to take on more patients. Do, do you want to maybe speak to that, um, including the broader point around poor uh, management of, of, just, of, of systems in, in our public health system? Well, absolutely, because one of the things that is stressing even private hospitals is what they call patients under investigation, because uh, everybody who even comes for uh, ordinary surgery, but uh, obviously urgent surgery, but not COVID-19 related, uh, now gets uh, gets a test beforehand. And, uh, in fact, anybody who comes to hospital is presumed to be possibly infected, and they, they end up in wards in these, uh, you know, patients under investigation. That's taking up a lot of, of ward space, and you're mm-hmm. quite correct. There should have been uh, more planning about this, but I do want to say that at the best of times, the Gauteng Health Department is highly stressed, particularly in midwinter. There's not mm-hmm. that much spare capacity. Uh, that's why we should have had some, uh, you know, extra building work and extra wards being put up, even even temporarily. Uh, let's take a hospital like Tembisa Hospital. Well, we all know that you could go there uh, any day of the week and find people probably in the corridors. Uh, and now that's uh, a COVID-19 hospital as well. So we, you know, there really could have been better planning. And also with staff, uh, uh, what's happening now is that we, we have beds, but uh, we don't have the staff. And it was only a couple of weeks ago the Gauteng Health Department did some serious recruiting. We should have done that uh, recruiting a lot earlier so that we have the staff in place because one of the things that, that's happening is that uh, many, many uh, healthcare workers are, are infected and they have to take time off. We found this overseas as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great concern that we might not have enough staff to 
to to to man all these beds and provide the proper care. Um, Jack, um, can you just comment on what the perhaps where the public sector in Kauteng could have worked better with the private sector or vice versa? Well, uh, in the Western Cape, they came to an agreement quite early with the private hospitals because there's a lot of spare capacity in uh, in intensive care beds in, mm-hmm. and, and that we should make use of that. So Western Cape led the way with uh, with an agreement, which uh, interestingly, they haven't had, had to use because mm-hmm. uh, Western Cape seems to actually have, have coped. Uh, uh, but of course, you always want that spare capacity if you need to. Now, counting mm-hmm. has followed quite late. Uh, I asked this question uh, quite, quite long ago in the legislature, actually, about two and a half months ago. And the MEC for Health said, yes, we have a service level agreement with the big private, the three big private health groups. Uh, but the problem there is Professor Alex van der Heerfer said, you don't just have to make an agreement with the private hospital groups. You also have to make an agreement with the doctors because mm. uh, doctors are not directly employed by private hospitals. They're all mm. independent contractors. That's the way the system works. So it doesn't appear to me like they've got a firm agreement with the mm. private uh, hospital groups uh, mm. to take uh, public patients, but that that is uh, a very important measure that I think they could have firmed up far earlier. Um, and then there's been some magnificent offers by, by private sector people uh, that haven't been taken up, and I'll come back again to the Gallagher Centre uh, proposal, which I think would have been well-placed between uh, Johannesburg and Pretoria, and mm-hmm. uh, it seemed to be a well-thought-out plan. And I, I know other people in the private sector tell me they've approached the Gauteng Health Department uh, with some very good proposals, all voluntary, and, uh, you know, have got very short shrift. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, we were, the Gauteng Health Department has worked very poorly with the private health sector in the past, mm-hmm. and, and matters are can't improve overnight, but I think mm. they missed some good opportunities, unfortunately. Um, can I, you know, given uh, one of the things that one's heard more, more often than one would have liked to in this, in this period of, of lockdown is the, the, the government's intention to forge ahead with NHI. Um, somehow it seems like it's, it's sort of the goodwill it garnished in the first three weeks of lockdown is sufficient to make NHI feasible. Um, surely it's, if it was ever feasible, it's not feasible now. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, our finances are completely shot and this is a very expensive system, but that doesn't seem to have stopped the president of the country and our own uh, health MEC here in Gauteng, Bandile Masuku, who keep talking up uh, the prospects of an NHI. Uh, I've been rather worried, in fact, that they, they might be looking at uh, what Ireland and uh, Spain have done uh, temporarily, or we think it was temporarily nationalized the private health sector. You see, government sees this as an opportunity to expend their powers, mm-hmm. and it's actually quite worrying. And, and there have been some murmurs about that. Um, the fact is that the public health sector in Gauteng and elsewhere, and however uh, bad you it's, it is in Gauteng. It's far, far worse in, in Eastern Cape, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that uh, we, we've had an undersupply of beds, especially intensive care beds.
it's uh, for many, many years. We've had mm. promises of hospitals uh, that should have been built. Uh, uh, I remember it was six years ago when they opened, uh, it was called then the new Natalspreit Hospital in Fosleris. It's mm-hmm. uh, now the Telemagorani Hospital. The Minister of Health, Aaron Motsuveli, promised that there'd be a brand new hospital in Sasha and Gube and that mm. uh, it wouldn't take eight years to build, which is how long the last hospitals took it be done, you know, quite soon. So mm. it would have been very nice if we had an extra hospital in, in Sashen Group. It would have been very nice if they reopened the hospital they closed in Kempton Park. So mm. unfortunately, uh, uh, you know the famous phrase by Warren Buffett, uh, he said that when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. Mm. Well, Unfortunately, uh, the Gauteng Health Department has been exposed because they, they're short of beds, uh, they're understaffed, um, and, and uh, frankly, some of our hospitals are, are falling apart because of mm. poor maintenance. Now, in the middle of this terrible pandemic, uh, Helen Joseph Hospital has a burst water pipe, mm. and I was getting calls from, from uh, worried relatives, and they said, look, they, they, you know, the patients don't have water to take their medicines. I mean, this is a hospital, and mm, this crisis mm, lasted some time, and it wasn't actually, you couldn't blame Johannesburg Water for it. They were supplying mm. the water. It was a burst pipe at Helen Joseph Hospital because of lack mm. of maintenance. Mm. So, you know, it's mm. like a perfect storm. Everything goes wrong at the same time, and, and patients can't even get water to take their medicine. Uh, mm. You know, honestly, all the sins of the past are coming home to roost now. Well, that, that, that's exactly the point. I mean, well, one of the things that I think we've often spoken, well, you know, we speak about is the fact that you can't go into an NHI of any kind and, unless your hospitals are fit for purpose and are being run properly and properly maintained. And from what you're saying is we're nowhere near there. Um, so the NHI can't start or go anywhere without, without that being put in place. And in which case you may not need the, the NHI anyway. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I've been calling for for many, many years in Kharteng is a management information system and cu- mm. computerization. If you, you know, if you don't have proper information, you're flying uh, in the dark. And that still hasn't happened. Uh, the province that's made uh, most progress with computerization is the Western Cape. And as we've seen, the Western Cape has actually managed to cope, uh, barely cope, uh, with a lot of strains. But uh, uh, they've, they've passed the peak of the epidemic. And uh, I, I think they're an example for, for the rest uh, of the country. But uh, what we see in Gauteng is that we don't have the systems in place and, and in some hospitals still have the most appalling management. Uh, you know, they should have been replaced long ago and they're just simply not able to handle the stresses of, of what's facing us now. Well, Jack, it does bring into question and um, just a quick uh, note, we are heading to our just uh, ad break and we'll, we'll have you on after the break, Jack. But in the last sort of um, three minutes or so before the break, you know, it does bring into question, and I want to uh, sort of um, get your view on this, the idea of ideology and it getting in the way of what is necessary uh, good practice learning from interna- international, international excuse me, best practice. Um, it does seem as though there's an ideological battle that is often unspoken but is there. Um, when it comes to, for instance, the ANC government wanting to forge ahead with the NHI, and I want to get your views on that, um, you know, at a... At a at a legislature level, what are some of the things you often hear from the ANC and their justification of why, for example, they don't work with the private sector? 
Well, there's uh, there's really a prejudice against uh, the private health sector. But let me just take the example of uh, the Cuban doctors. Uh, for heaven's mm. sake, to spend uh, 300 million rand uh, bringing in, uh, you know, just under 200 Cuban doctors. Gauteng is getting about 28. I mean, it really makes very little difference. And, and, mm. and most of them can't even speak English. So, unfortunately, our role models are completely wrong. You know, our president uh, has very warm relations and messages to send to Cuba, Venezuela, uh, you know, communist China. Uh, he seemed to have nice things to say about uh, some very terrible countries. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, they, they still have this conception that the public sector can run things. Uh, uh, how, do you, how do you explain trying to rescue uh, SAA? It's just incomprehensible that, that there's money trying to find uh, to save uh, this airline uh, which has never done very well in the last few years uh, mm. because of government interference. Uh, so, yes, there's a, a long-standing prejudice against the, the, the private health sector, of course, except when they want treatment because that's where they mm. head as soon as possible. Mm. And, 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 Jack, we, we must take a break. But after the break, I'm also going to ask you to maybe give an alternative. You know, what has... Um, you know, you've been in the space for a very long time and I know you've, um, put forward alternatives, you know, even DA policy and what you guys could have done, um, in this uh, situation. So I'll give you that opportunity after the break. After the break, we continue our conversation with Jack Bloom, who is the member of parliament, uh, provincial parliament, excuse me, in the, in the Gauteng legislature for the Democratic Alliance. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Molo Sambonani, hello, how's it? Welcome back to the IRR show. I am in conversation with Jack Bloom and Sarah Gunn is here with us. Sarah, um, mm. as we maybe sort of whittle down the conversation in the last seven minutes or so mm-hmm. with Jack, um, Jack, I must ask you the question. So anybody who would have been listening uh, to our conversation would rightly now have a, fir- a firm command over what has been plaguing the public health care system, you know, from the poor management to um, the adherence by politicians, those in government at least, to an ideology that, that, that is state-centric, even though the state hasn't been the most efficient um, at organizing public health care. But now they might be thinking, but Jack, hang on, what would the DA have done um, had you guys been in the administration here in Gauteng? Um, how do you tackle that question, Jack, both in the context of COVID-19 and broadly the public, getting the public health care system back on its feet? Well, look, we, we can use public money to purchase private services, and they're really having to do this with testing. Uh, what we found is that the National Health Laboratory Service has made big promises but hasn't been able to fulfill it, and the majority of testing is still done by uh, private laboratories. And, and government is having to pay the private laboratories now because this simply isn't the state capacity. So why don't we have more of this uh, private-public partnership, uh, state finance and, and private provision? But what we really should be doing is the opposite of what the government's been doing. They've been trying to uh, make it uh, more expensive and unattractive uh, to, to be on a private medical aid, whereas we should be doing the opposite. We should be doing everything we can to get more people able to afford uh, 
private medical aid, uh, but uh, the government's been making it uh, difficult, uh, deliberately so, because uh, they, they see the private health sector, quite frankly, as a as a competitor to, to the public health sector, and that's why we don't have uh, um, private medical schools. We are very short of doctors. We're training roughly the same amount of doctors that we did 30 years ago. Why can't we have a private medical school? Uh, they, they're willing to, to work, but the government has got a prejudice against them. So I, I think the government's got to see that uh, we have a, a major asset in the, in the private health sector, and we could uh, use that major asset uh, to provide far better services for far more people. Uh, but uh, we, we need to make things easy for people to, 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 um, to get onto private uh, health facilities because every every person that is in a private hospital takes the burden off the public hospitals. Of course, we could be more radical than that and, and move to a sort of voucher system where, where people get money and they can spend it uh, where they want to and that would help with competition. But uh, the government is just stuck in, in, in the public sector knows best. And quite frankly, I have to say the role of corruption. I think the reason they want the state to be more involved is there's more opportunities uh, for to make money out of it, quite frankly. So uh, one of the things the DA would certainly do is, is cut out all the corruption. We've really got a scandal now where the husband of uh, President Ramaphosa's spokesperson is allegedly involved in, in a tender for uh, personal protective equipment given out by the Kharping Health Department. I mean, this is outrageous. Uh, can you imagine in the middle of a pandemic, obviously you've got to do emergency procurement, uh, that some people want to, to profit from it. So I mm. think uh, we should look at uh, the Western Cape Health uh, uh, System as the example. They are the only health system in the whole of South Africa that gets a clean audit from the Auditor General. I think that's a, a considerable achievement. Just do good old-fashioned things like uh, mm. point people uh, uh, who, who can do the job. Um, so you put the <laughs> in place. So don't steal the money. Uh, you know, get good services. Fix up the public sector to the best uh, that it can be. Uh, interact, I think, in very fruitful ways with the private health sector. And and I have to say that it's broader than just health services. You know, I always say that uh, the healthiest thing that you could do for a country is to to make sure that everybody has a job. So mm -hmm. if we did the right things and people had jobs and, you know, could afford uh, better circumstances, better nutrition, housing, I mean, those are, are very important to improving the health of people. And, and again, I come back to why don't you make it easier for people to have private health provision because public health uh, provision should just be really a safety net. Uh, mm. But uh, unfortunately, uh, our government doesn't think that way. And as I said, I think there's some self-interest of motives for this power grab because that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in the last sort of three minutes or so that we have, Jack, um, I, I, as maybe the last question from my side, and sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll let you mm. begin here. But, you know, looking at the COVID-19 situation right now and the state in which Gauteng uh, finds itself in, you know, I've, I've been of the view that it's been a mixture of scaremongering, poor planning, and really just pure incompetence, to, to be honest. Um, the scaremongering involves things like, you know, bad communication around, you know, uh, you know digging a million graves, for instance, um, and that becoming the, the, the almost uh, centerpiece of communication for a while around the state's readiness uh, or, or rather preparations for COVID-19. Um, maybe to come back to my question, 
on COVID-19 in particular, how will you guys uh, tackle this if, uh, if you were literally at the helm of the Gauteng provincial government? Well, I think that the whole testing, tracing and isolating was not done well. It was very unfocused in Gauteng. They had the so-called community testing. The, the Gauteng uh, provincial government claimed that they had screened uh, about 7 to 8 million people, which I, I think is not credible. That's half the population of Gauteng. Now, what Western Cape did is they focused on the hot spots. That's what you really should be doing. Uh, and unfortunately, I think they were let down by the lack of public testing capacity. But uh, I think Western Cape has, has weathered the, the epidemic, uh, you know, much better than than elsewhere. It's only becoming evident now because at one stage people in Gauteng were saying, oh, look how bad it is in Western Cape. But uh, I think they've, they, they haven't... Uh, uh, the hospitals have been basically able to 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 cope, uh, and I'm not sure that's going to be the case in in Gauteng. Um, I just hope that uh, we are able to to weather this. Um, you see, what happens with this uh, epidemic? It, it goes up, and then it seems to plateau. That's what's happening in the Western mm. Cape. And that's the the light at the end of the very long tunnel. But I, I suspect that we're going to follow the, 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 the pattern of Western Cape. I think we might already have started to plateau, which is good news. But unfortunately, I, I don't think we have uh, uh, enough hospital resources to save as many lives as we could have saved. Mm. Yeah. Um, Jack, perhaps I could put these, these figures to you, which, which actually horrified me, which go to everything you've said. Um, I see that the budget, the Gauteng Health budget for 2021 is 57 billion rand. Then in 2019, 28 billion was spent on negligence claims. Now, not only is that a horrific waste of money, but surely unless you get things right or more right than they are now, you are going to spend a disproportionately large amount of money paying for your mistakes. Well, well, absolutely. It shows you uh, how everything is so poorly managed. The, the figure you quoted for Gauteng is, is actually the, the claims, not what they actually paid out. But what oh, they okay, have paid okay. out is, 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 is very, very considerable. It is billions. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But then you look at the Western Cape, and in fact, um, you know, what they've had to pay out has actually been minimal. So what the example of Western Cape shows is that you can run uh, quite a decent public health system in South Africa, but uh, you have to do the right things. And I would come back to what the Auditor General always says every year and, and is unfortunately ignored. Um, put in the right systems and controls. Uh, make sure that there isn't uh, irregular expenditure and there isn't fruitful, mm-hmm. fruitless and wasteful expenditure, which every year comes up with a horrific uh, figure, uh, just do the simple, simplest basic things right, and I think things could be a lot better. But yes, you're right, we can't, we can't spend uh, hundreds of millions every year on, on, on negligence claims, uh, which of course are highly distressing for the people involved and, and makes a big hole in the budget as well, money that, that, that we need uh, very urgently to, to fight the latest health crisis. Absolutely. Uh, Jack, thank you so much. I must, must, must uh, end it here. We have run out of time. But uh, that's Jack Bloom, the health spokesperson and uh, DA member of the provincial legislature here in Gauteng. Thank you so much, Jack, for your time. Thank you. Awesome. Guys, we're going to have to take our last ad break. After the break, uh, we look at the news week ahead, what to expect and, um, you know, what you should be looking out for.
Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. All right, Sarah, um, mm. top items that are on your radar. I want to just quickly revisit something you, you uh, sent to me in the notes. Right. Um, Justice, Justice Malala, maybe do you want to just quickly talk about that? Oh, yes. Jay-Z no, they, corruption. They, this is a quick one. Basically, Justice Malala was saying that Jacob Zuma has won. On, on corruption. In, in, essence, in essence, he's saying is nothing has happened. There have mm. you know, not enough people have been called to account for anything that was done in his, uh, during his tenure. Uh, and mm. he's saying you know, he's essentially beaten Cyril on that one. Um, mm. I think into this week, we're obviously going to look at restaurant strike, shall we call it that? Um, the, right. alcohol, the alcohol industry is, is, has, has got to do something because it's, it's, it's also about the industry surrounding alcohol, the, the manufacture of the glass, of the, of the, of the glass bottles, et cetera, et cetera, the small suppliers, the small distributors. It, it's not just about, it, I know it's just so terrible, about the social problem. Of, so that will be on. Cigarettes and the challenge to the banning of cigarettes, because cigarettes, you notice, haven't been mentioned at all. Um, the only response, I think the most recent response by the president is that cigarettes will not be banned forever. So, um, yeah, right. Which is such a, it's a non, it's a non-statement. Non, um, it's a non, it's a non-statement. And, and they also apparently say that the science is on their side in terms of their court papers. Whereas everything we understand is that the science is not on their side, but be that as it may. And then just perhaps the thing that you watch is Gwedi Mantashe has COVID and he's been hospitalized. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that, that at the moment is, is still ongoing. And perhaps mm. I could sum up the whole program, the, the week that was and the week to come, by a quote mm-hmm. that was in the book of Maverick by John Maynard Keynes this, this morning. At mm-hmm. present, everything is politics and nothing policies. Absolutely. Well, on that note, let us say goodbye um, to you, dear listener. Thank you so much for listening to this week's installment of the IRR show. Remember, if you like the views, if you like the news analysis and opinion that we share on the show, find us on our website. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. You'll find Sarah and all the um, columnists and opinionists on there. Remember to look out for the Big Daddy Liberty show um, online on Wednesday on YouTube and any of your social media. And, of course, on the syndicated High FM show on Friday. Guys, with that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.